Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, live from the Richard Philip Cavallero Studio South. Welcome to the Monday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call, where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your host, Matt McDermott, joined today by Nathan Ritchie and Ryan Pagano. Today we're going to be discussing the U.S. having enough booster shots to satisfy all the holdouts across the country, as well as the unfortunate funeral of Gabby Petito. But before we talk about those topics, first off, Nathan, Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm a bit tired, obviously, as it is 8 o'clock in the morning, but I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to talk about all these issues today. Uh, and It's been a good weekend. Hope you all had a good weekend as well. Yeah, it's been a good week. Uh, we have not been on air for uh, last week because, unfortunately, a lot of us got sick which is kind of the way uh, the cookie crumbles nowadays because of COVID and because of bronchitis going around. Ryan, how are you today? Well, I'm feeling tired overall, but you know what? I'm pretty much ready to start a new week, uh, you know, move on to better pastures for sure. I mean, <laughs> tragically, my San Francisco 49ers lost in a heartbreaker yesterday. So, I mean, I'm looking to move on from that. And you know what? It's a new week. No, I feel like I wouldn't be a good journalist if I didn't ask. You're from New York, right? Oh, I am, yeah. So why are you a 49ers fan? Well, you know, like, I'm not judging. I'm just curious. Yeah, no worries. Well, first off, I feel like it'd probably be a good time uh, to give a quick shout-out to my mom here. Uh, <laughs> she grew up a 49ers fan, so ah, kind of got see. that here a hierarchy going for me. There you go. Uh, it's kind of the same way with my father. He was uh, an Indianapolis Colts fan. So it's kind of like, wh- why is there an Indianapolis Colts fan in New York? Well, that's why. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, moving on to the first news story of the day, I believe, Nathan, that is your ballpark. So why don't you get us started in the conversation on that? Yeah, the the United States now has enough shots to supply uh, all the boosters uh, to those in need. So that would be the communities uh, in nursing homes and those over 65 years old who have gotten uh, their first and second doses quite a while ago now, as we speak, uh, as well as those below 12 which have not yet uh, been approved. The FD- they're still waiting FDA approval on those vaccines and to make sure that they're safe enough for 12-year-old 12 12 and under uh, to, to get inoculated and get uh, hopefully immune as possible to COVID-19. And uh, there are still a lot of op- opposition to the vaccination on Long Island, especially on Long Island, as we have a lot of minority communities who have been labeled as uh, vaccine hesitant. Uh, and that brings up a very important uh, conversation about vaccine hesitancy and about tapping into those uh, communities that haven't seen the attention that, uh, or maybe the focused attention, maybe that the, the entire Long Island community has seen from people like uh, Governor Hochul, uh, from you know Clavin, uh, Steve Ballone, and mm. Laura Curran, uh, who have all have uh, pretty stark initiatives. I get what you're saying. I understand what you're saying as far as certain communities kind of being neglected as far as the uh, messaging of the vaccine goes. I will say that <clears throat> I understand the hesitancy in those communities more right. than I would say, like, I understand the hesitancy in, I don't know, say Garden City or something. Because those are cities and communities that the government has historically neglected. And when you neglect a population for 150 years and then all of a sudden start saying, you know, here's this vaccine that will protect you, 
but we're pushing really hard for it and we're the same government that's done all these atrocities and done all these things to you and your ancestors, then I get the hesitancy. I get why it's not um, the, at the forefront of people's minds to take the vaccine. I'm Puerto Rican on my mother's side. I mean, I have family members who don't want to get the vaccine for that reason. And while I may not necessarily agree, I, I can't really blame them for having that thought process, especially coming from the ethnic group that we do. Ryan, what do you think about the whole concept of the messaging of the vaccine getting to certain communities and not to others? Well, you know, I'm a bit torn on it, to be honest. Like, I mean, I just want to say that I'm kind of surprised by this. But at the same time, you know, I definitely want to say I'm not really that shocked by it. I mean, I will say personally, though, I have been a little bit surprised by this vaccine hesitancy, especially since, I mean, we have the surge of the Delta variant going on as of late. And, you know, it kind of gets me wondering, has this vaccine hesitancy been because the vaccines haven't been marketed enough in some communities? Or is it because they don't have good accessibility? And I mean, seeing what our local communities have done throughout these past few months, I feel like they have definitely made efforts uh, to try and make these vaccines more accessible to the general public. No, absolutely. I don't think this is like a one-stop thing. You know, I think there's definitely several different variants you have to take into account when you're talking about like, oh, why won't people get the vaccine? I feel like people as a whole, not from any particular political party or political affiliation, but just as a whole, kind of don't see why the other side does what they do. And I feel like that's kind of been on display on both sides during the COVID pandemic. Um, I feel like one of the things that they could do to kind of get that message out further is be more transparent about, you know, the vaccine, about not necessarily what it does, we all know what it does, but just about the, how they're distributing it and what they're doing as far as getting it to people. Because they've been having a lot of mixed messages since the beginning of the um, pandemic, not as far as vaccines, but as far as everything. I mean, if you remember back in March of 2020, they were saying like, oh, you shouldn't wear masks. And that was because we had a mask shortage in the country. It just wasn't enough for people to wear. So when you saw that, and then you see the same people that flip-flopped on something as basic and elemental as that saying, oh, you should get the vaccine. It's I understand the hesitancy behind it. Right. Yeah, I can understand the hesitancy as well. And there have been uh, a lot of different kind of studies that have happened uh, to reason out this hesitancy. And I mean, like you said, Matt, with, um, with, you know, the historical uh, distrust of the government, um, and completely justified and things that they kind of discussed when figuring out a solution to vaccine hesitancy is how can we place this information in trusting individuals that can then disseminate that information Mm. to those communities Um, and in turn it would create a better trust system for those orators within within the, the said communities No, absolutely. I think that's kind of um, the job of the media and the job of us as a whole, just to kind of get that information out there. You know, whether you believe it on a political level or not, it's the truth. And what we need to do is just get out the truth. And I feel like, unfortunately, the trust in those mediums that you said, you know, those trusted public figures getting the information out, disseminating that information has kind of hit a real all-time low, which is um, disconcerting for a number of reasons, but not the least of which because of the effects that we're seeing. Like, you know, what you said, Ryan, the, um, the surge of the Delta variant, which fortunately is going down now in a lot of states, but not all states, you know, especially those states that are unvaccinated or where the majority of the population or a large portion of the back, uh, population is unvaccinated. So it's definitely a big um, 
issue that we're going to see going forward. And I, I want to turn our attention to the concept of booster shots. Because the World Health Organization, back in the beginning of the month, asked for booster shots to halt, not because they didn't believe in the effectiveness of booster shots, but because so many people across the world were still having trouble getting just one vaccine, just getting one shot of the vaccine. So I almost feel like, and I'm not saying, you know, it's a good idea or a bad idea, and I'm not trying to pass moral judgment, but I do almost feel like it's kind of perverse in a way because, you know, we live in the United States, you know, we're fortunate in that sense. Um, the people who live in Europe are fortunate in that sense that we may, not the people in Europe, but the people in the U.S., have access to a booster shot when so many people in the U.S. and across the world, like not even in the U.S., still haven't gotten their first shot. And in other parts of the world, it's because there's just not a supply of the vaccine, which is completely insane to think about here because we always had this kind of well-structured thing where we never quite ran out of vaccines. In fact, we have a lot more to spare. So it's kind of weird in a way. And again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying like, you know, you should or shouldn't do it or I'm passing moral judgment on you if you do or don't get a booster shot because that's your own prerogative. You know, you're your own, you're your own person. But I feel like just a reflection on it. It's kind of weird the fact that we can have those discussions about like, oh, should we do booster shots? Oh, should we not do booster shots? While there are portions of other countries that are just completely without vaccines. Right. And the United States has donated a lot of doses to to countries in the world that are in need. And I don't think that has been promoted enough one I don't think it has been done on a big enough scale because I, th I think uh, it's much more deep-rooted it's much more widespread than we think um, that these vaccines aren't widely available to you know countries in the third world or countries uh, that we might not even think of you know no and, absolutely right and I think that just needs to that initiative that the the, that our administration has brought upon just needs to be boosted a little bit more. As for within the United States, uh, we have so much supply, mm -hmm. and people, you know, you hear that and you you say, "Wow, that's such a good thing," but I think it's pretty scary considering, like we were talking about before, the vaccine hesitancy, not just within minority communities, but within uh, the majority communities as well. And so you have to wonder, are we just wasting our time and money on uh, equipment to store these vaccines? Are we wasting time and, and money on producing these vaccines when they're just going to go to waste and expire after uh, after a few months? No, absolutely. I get what you're saying because there's been a whole um, rush of that. You know, a lot of the talk on social media about like, hey, why are we getting all these vaccines when half of us aren't even using them? Why isn't someone living in India or someone living in Haiti getting those vaccines when honestly they're probably much sorer in need of it compared to the socioeconomic conditions in which they're living? Ryan, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about the um, equitable distribution of vaccines as well as the concept of booster shots in the U.S. and the controversy surrounding those. Oh, definitely, for sure. And, you know, I truly feel that, yes, I mean, these booster shots, perhaps they could be effective. But, you know, with that being said, I truly feel that, you know, you have one important problem still remaining and that is the percentage of the population that hasn't even gotten a single shot yet. And, you know, many federal health officials over these past few weeks, they've stressed this. Uh, they've stressed indeed that this is the main problem. And I mean, if we're going to be looking ahead to these next few weeks, I mean, I don't believe that'll be 
uh, changing anytime soon in regards to their stances, not just with the booster shots, but also with the lack of people getting their first shots as well. No, absolutely. I think this is a good time, too, to talk about just how much information on both sides, misinformation, rather, on both sides has been going out. Because when you said, um, you know, the, when you said the line going forward and like we need to keep looking at this intently going forward, my mind jumped to something that I heard from a friend of mine that was like, oh, you know, they're saying the pandemic will be over in November or something. And, you know, I don't, it's not that I don't believe this friend, um, but I've heard the same thing for the when I mean, we've all heard the same thing for the past year and a half. You know, before in 2020, it was it's going to be over in two weeks and then it was going to be over by the time school starts, and then it's going to be over by Christmas, and then it's going to be over by the summer of 2021, and now it's November of 2021. So I think that's going to be something that we need to uh, not keep a lid on, but, you know, just kind of um, think about going forward because no one really does know when it's going to end. And I think the concept of just how much misinformation going forward, I don't want to say misinformation even, but, like, just unknowns going forward and things that we just don't know as a community and things that we don't know as a country going forward is going to either really, really help our pandemic response because it gives us hope or really really hinder our pandemic response for the same reasons of not being transparent that i discussed before right speculation and that hope that you were talking about i think that it will severely hinder our our pandemic response and i think it's already been proven i mean we were so close and we were so hopeful last this past summer um with you know states like new york uh, rescinding their their uh, indoor mask mandate, and it was like, wow, there's finally a light at the end of this tunnel. And all of a sudden, uh, those same states that had rescinded that mandate are reinstating it because yep. of the Delta variant. And if the, obviously the Delta variant wouldn't have been so severe if if <clears throat> the vaccination rate of the entire country had been higher. So I think we need to do better as a society. Uh, the administration has to do better at, you know, stressing the importance that this is deadly. This is still a huge problem. And the more we speculate, the more we're going to lose focus on now on, on getting that vaccine out to people. You know, I understand what you're saying, Nathan, but um, I'm not sure if I entirely agree with the concept of we haven't been saying that enough. Like, I do think it's important, you know, to say, to not understate this. You know, this is a very serious disease. That being said, I feel like we've been hearing that from the rooftops for for good reason. You know, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but we have been hearing that quite a bit for the past year and a half. You know, most people have been saying, you know, don't underestimate the virus, don't underestimate this. And the people who are saying like, oh, you know, it's just a cold. Oh, you know, it's just a flu, even though there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. Um, they're the ones that are usually relegated to the fringe ends of the political spectrum. You know, like those are the ones that you see on, um, on you know, those kind of wacky websites that are like, oh, you know, the vaccine's a microchip or, oh, the vaccine's the mark of the beast from the book of Revelation, you know. And those are the things that nobody listens to, and rightfully so, you know. I'm relatively sure um, as a non-scientific authority that the vaccine is not a microchip, that it's not um, the mark of the Antichrist. But the thing is, that's what so many people believe and the same people pushing those are the ones that we usually tend to relegate to the fringes of the political spectrum for good reason. So I feel like my point is I just don't necessarily agree that like we have to do a better job of um, of not downplaying the seriousness of the virus because I don't think we have been. I think it is a very serious disease and I think it's been getting most of the airtime that it deserves, which is good yeah. because, you know, it's affecting our daily lives. 
But at the same time, the people that already believe those things, you're not really probably going to change their minds anytime soon. Not because of any personal fault of their own, but just because of the nature of what they do and the nature of the people pushing those theories. The fact that people see more gain in, you know, exploiting the fears of people that may not be as fortunate enough to be educated as us for money or for views, which is a very, very sad thing indeed. Oh, definitely, for sure. And, you know, you seeing all this misinformation being spread throughout social media throughout the pandemic. And look, the science has been very trustworthy during this pandemic, I would say. But, you know, going forward, this really makes you wonder how much will Americans be able to trust science in the future, especially with all this misinformation going around? I mean, you definitely have to question that for sure if you were an American. No, absolutely. I think that it's going to be a really, um, well, really, really important thing going forward to kind of uh, think critically, but not think outside of the box as far as like possibilities. You know, because we've all heard of um, the concept of Occam's razor. You know, the um, the most the most likely solution is the most obvious one, or the most likely answer is the most obvious one. So, like conspiracy theories are usually just not, are usually just kind of made by someone connecting like random thoughts or random thoughts. Uh, dots on a paper or just kind of seeing connections where there aren't connections, which is a really big theme in American culture, I feel. But um, it's growing, yes. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I feel like that's one of those things that's not going to go away. And I think, Ryan, that you make a really good point as far as, you know, how much will Americans trust scientific officials going forward in the future? I mean, you've seen um, even the controversy surrounding Dr. Fauci. I mean, you either love Dr. Fauci or you hate Dr. Fauci's guts. And I'm not saying, like, which one you should or shouldn't do. I have my own opinions on the subject. Um, I feel like he's done an interesting job as far as, or a good job as far as the pandemic, just keeping it under control. But, you know, there are also things that he could have done better. So I'm not going to be um, here on my pedestal telling you, oh, you know, you should like Dr. Fauci or oh, you shouldn't like Dr. Fauci. But I think your personal opinions aside on the man, he's not trying to, um, you know, reduce the human population or whatever. You know, some of those crazy conspiracy theories that you hear. Um just for the fact that that's just not how the government operates. It's not how people operate. That's not our instinct. So that concept of conspiracy theory is interesting, and I feel like that ties into your discussion, Ryan, and how this is going to affect scientific perception in the future. Yeah, and I mean, I, I feel like we, I, we need to do better in the sense that to get that education out to those that are in need, that those that have conspirated and created these theories um, surrounding the, the the pandemic and surrounding the vaccine. Uh, but, I mean, it brings up an important question. Like, is there really any hope to get this education out to those people that are starkly against or staunchly against the vaccine? Is there any hope, uh, you know, to get that information out? I feel like if there is any hope, it doesn't start with belittling them. It doesn't start with um, right. calling them, you know, these crazy crackpots that are doing nothing but destroying the country. Because I feel like that's what a lot of people do. I mean, I think I just did it on air. Because that's just the way people think, you know? That's the way people get angry. Because we've already lived through 18 months of this. And it's like enough already. But at the same time, if you have those deep-rooted beliefs, they're not just going to change overnight. And they're certainly not going to change when everybody's yelling at you about how bad your beliefs are. So I think the place to start with really does come from a place of compassion, really does come from a place of, I understand you're not as fortunate enough to be, you're not fortunate as I, to be educated as I am because of the circumstances in which you were raised or because of how you think or, or et cetera. 
So I think the way to kind of, I don't want to say redemption, but kind of just making them see, you know, the way things actually are is just kind of going forward and kind of, you know, teaching them like you teach a child and not saying that they are children because they're not and they need to be held accountable for if they do wrongdoing. But having an opinion isn't wrongdoing. And I feel like that's something that we really do need to look for. Ryan, this is the last point that we're going to make, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, to be completely honest with you, I mean, I definitely think it's very important to really have your own opinions about this thing. Because, I mean, look, I got vaccinated myself and I, I have a lot of friends who have decided to not get the vaccine. And I mean, I definitely think that's uh, something that should be totally okay. I mean, it is their choice after all. And I mean, look, would I wish for them to get vaccinated? Definitely. I mean, it, of course, would add extra protection against COVID-19, especially with the Delta variant going around and everything. But at the same time, I mean, it is their choice at the end of the day. And I mean, that's something I can't really necessarily argue with here, especially in that situation. No, absolutely. And I feel like that kind of nuance is lost on um, people in the public on both sides. You know, Um, we're going to be moving on to our next story right after this break. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. We're back again on 88.7 FM WRHU Radio Hofstra University. I'm Matthew McDermott, and I'm talking with Nathan Ritchie and Ryan Pagano on Hofstra's morning wake up call. A federal appeals court has temporarily blocked New York City's requirement for education workers to be vaccinated. The restraining order, which was announced on Friday night, came just two days before the mandate was to take effect. Fears of severe staffing shortages in New York City schools have prompted school unions to push for a delay in the mandate. If the mandate proceeds, the New York City school system could find itself short by about 10,000 employees. The hearing to discuss the mandate will take place this coming Wednesday. Now, I feel like when we talk about shortages, we kind of downplay how serious of an issue this actually is. I mean, there's been talk... um, Excuse me. There's been talk in New York about using the National Guard in healthcare shortages because they're facing a similar mandate. And a lot of there's fears that a lot of hospitals are finding themselves short, are going to find themselves short like overnight. So are they going to use the National Guard to use, um, you know, be kind of orderlies in hospitals and custodians and stuff like that? Maybe. I mean, they're doing it in um, Massachusetts for a different reason. They had uh, bus drivers go on strike a while back or not maybe not go on strike, but they had a lot of bus driver shortages. So they actually had to use the National Guard, uh, vehicle drivers of the National Guard, to drive kids to school, which is a really weird concept that a public facility like that, that's usually been so reliable and usually been so like, you know, you could always depend on the school bus being there. Unfortunately, if you're a fourth grader, you know, that's always been there. It's kind of just fallen flat. And I feel like that's happened in New York, too, as far as the buses go. And that's going to happen as far as um, education and as far as healthcare goes, if there aren't steps taken to mitigate it in one way or another. Yeah, and it definitely brings a scary reality uh, that the New York City school system has to face and that we have to face uh, as as a community, not just within the, the metropolitan area, but uh, in all over the United States. I mean, what's to say that this isn't happening in other communities and other um, school systems that are desperately in need and that are so big to the to the point where they have to be given a lot of attention a lot of staff uh and and i I think um it kids might not even know the shortage is happening when they're getting that education but the the more that this happens and the more that we bring attention to this i think um hopefully it will 
you know, mitigate it, like you said. Uh, but I think it'll create a cyclical effect in in that misinformation with with the vaccine, like we were talking about. Uh, and I think it might inspire kids to to be hesitant in the future if they see their teachers and uh, even their parents kind of feeling that same sentiment. Uh, and and it might, you know, fuel that cyclical nature. I mean, that's pretty speculative and that's pretty far in the future. But that's just my thought on the. Uh, impact of this situation and hopefully i mean it figures uh, something can help figure it out yeah i mean exactly nathan and you know something else to really take into account especially in this situation as well uh the new york city school system now it is the largest in the nation and could and you know you now you're considering they could be short ten thousand employees which i mean you would think about it and you might say to yourself that doesn't necessarily seem like much except you don't necessarily take into account how much 10,000 employees really is. So with that in mind, you know, you'd have to wonder how does that affect the educational experience within schools? I mean, truly, I don't necessarily know how that's going to go going forward, especially now that you're facing all these educational shortages seemingly overnight for the most part. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make on both your parts. Um, Ryan, going back to your point about you know, 10,000 may not seeming like a big number in the proportion of things. You know, I've read somewhere that's about 10% of the schools, um, not 10%, about 1% of the school's um, staffing ability in the States, which, you know, it's definitely not a huge proportion, but just by sheer manpower, you know, like, okay, now you try finding 10,000 substitutes overnight for elementary schools. I mean, you remember, you guys were in elementary school. You remember how bad it was um, when a teacher called in sick and they got like the gym teacher to sub for history class or math class or something, that would basically be a free period. No one would learn anything. So <clears throat> that's kind of one of those things that we're going to have to look for, look, uh, not look forward to, but look at going forward because seeing these shortages is kind of like a vision of the future. And unfortunately that's the way we are. And I am um, Mayor de Blasio. when he was asked about the shortages coming up in New York city, kept saying, and governor Hochul for that instance, talking about the healthcare shortages in the state Kept saying like, oh, you know, in the event that people quit on mass overnight, basically because of a vaccine requirement, we are ready. You know, we can definitely take care of this. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe them, but also we've heard that so many times before, even before the pandemic. You know, we've heard like we're all ready for the next catastrophe to hit the nation. We're all ready for the next. I've heard even pandemic before COVID even happened. And then we all saw how that happened. We all saw how that happened and how that worked. We all saw what what is it now? 700,000 Americans die of COVID when the absolute worst like doomsday estimates beforehand were like 200,000. So I feel like when people say like, we're ready, it's like, yeah, okay. You know, I feel like rightfully or not, a lot of Americans are going to take that with a grain of salt going forward because it's been proven time and time again that our infrastructure is not as resilient as we think it is. And our infrastructure is not as robust as we think it is. I mean, we even saw that with a hurricane over the summer, not over the summer, but Hurricane Ida. I mean, we were talking about that the last show that we were on together because of just how bad it was and just how sudden it was and the fact that we got no warning and the fact that 20 people died in New York from flooding, which is, like, unheard of. But the fact remains that when people say, like, oh, we got this, we're ready, you know, I'm not saying they are or aren't ready. I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball that I could look into. But I understand people when they say, yeah, okay, you know, like, you said you were ready for the pandemic. You said we were ready for the hurricane. It's just, um, I understand that. I understand that hesitancy and that, um, that thought process of maybe we're not ready. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of hesitancy. <clears throat> I mean, we've been talking about it all, all show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and 
I, I like I'm I'm curious to know. So, the National Guard steps in, and like <clears throat> you said, with the, with the school bus system, mm-hmm. driving kids to school, are they going to step in in a similar way, and sub in for for elementary school teachers, for middle school teachers, and, and <clears throat> teach kids, or some appropriate replacement? I really hope not. And I'm not saying that because I doubt their abilities. I'm not saying like, oh, the National Guard is skillless because they're not. You know, they're an important part of the national defense structure. At the same time, though, they're not elementary school teachers. That's just not their trade. In the same way that I wouldn't trust myself to go teaching a bunch of kindergartners, I probably wouldn't trust the uh, 25-year-old clerk working for the National Guard on the side to teach a bunch of second graders, you know? And that's not a reflection on them. That's a reflection on what they need, you know? Teachers are trained to talk to kids in the level that they would understand. Teachers are trained on a more serious note to look for signs of child abuse and bad domestic situations at home. Now, I'm not, again, I don't want to sound like I'm knocking on the skills of these people, but they're just not trained in that way. In the same way that you or I or Ryan or anyone in the station, most likely, or anyone in the school yet, besides the educators themselves, are trained to deal with that because of our age or because of our chosen career field. I feel that's one of those things that I really hope we don't have to find that out because I feel like that's just asking for disaster one way or another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a tough situation. I I don't know how many choices we have regarding this, but but I mean, hopefully the the ready solution is to to get these people to get the vaccine and and hopefully get the mandate to work how it's supposed to work and incentivizing people to get the vaccine or losing their jobs you're right though that's the other thing like right. we we don't really have many other choices like if if ten thousand teachers quit on mass and we have to find ten thousand substitutes for the new york metropolitan area it's like oh boy you know that really does leave us in um up a bad creek without a paddle but um ryan i'd be interested to hear what you have to think about new york city schools and the national guard possibly not we're not we don't know if they're being deployed to um help the schools yet because most talk of the national guard has only been surrounding the um the uh healthcare system but um what do you think of national guardsmen in our schools right definitely i mean i just feel there's so much uncertainty in regards to that and you know something uh, i wanted to bring up about a potential labor shortage as well uh 98% of members of the united federation of teachers uft for short including their president michael mulgrew Uh, They've stated publicly that, you know, they're not 100 percent certain if both Mayor de Blasio and the Department of Education have a proper safety plan in place in regards to possibly getting all those 10,000 workers unvaccinated. And, you know, something that kind of speaks volumes to me in that sense. Uh, Mulgrew, he stated publicly that he would go right to Governor Kathy Hochul for help rather than asking de Blasio. So I feel like you definitely really kind of comprehend how dire this situation has become. And, you know, you got a question as well, whether or not a better safety plan can be put in place in regards to getting these teachers vaccinated and back into these schools as well. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, we're all New Yorkers. Um, Ryan and I are from Long Island. Nathan, I believe you're from Rochester. Yes. But um, I feel like we could all say with certainty that even before the pandemic, like before the pandemic was even a thought in people's heads, I feel like there's been a pretty big gap of mistrust between public workers in New York City and Mayor de Blasio. And whether that's justified or not, you could have a whole debate over. But I think that's just been the truth. I mean, you guys remember, what was it, five or six years ago when those um, two cops were unfortunately ambushed and killed in New York and Mayor de Blasio gave a eulogy 
and the entire NYPD turned their backs to him. Like, do you remember how big news that was? And do you remember how, like, people were saying, like, they're mistrusting the mayor. That's insane. Because it is insane. And I feel like this is kind of, this is definitely a different circumstance. It's definitely a less extreme circumstance. But this is kind of a continuation of a theme that we've seen all throughout the de Blasio administration of public city um, officials not necessarily trusting the city administration. And again, I'm not throwing my two cents in whether that's justified or not. But justified or not, that has that is the case. And that is what people think. And I feel like as people that grew up in New York, we could all say that. So that's unfortunately the thing that we're going to have to look at going forward. And it ties back because, you know, the horseshoe theory and because we're talking about all this in a neat little bow to people not trusting the government. You know, this is a different kind of government. This is a local government as opposed to a federal government or a state government. But it's still government and it's still a pretty prominent government in the largest city in the United States and one of the largest cities on the planet. So, you know, I feel like that's definitely something that they're going to have to address in the same way the federal government's going to have to address vaccine misinformation. The difference is this has been going on for a lot longer and they've had a lot longer to address it and they just haven't. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one other point that I wanted to bring up as well regarding this and on top of the effect that this mandate would have on the educational experience. You know, one thing I'm definitely curious about is how would this affect New York City's unemployment rate? Because something you'd have to keep Mm. in mind here, New York City has dealt with higher unemployment rates compared to the rest of the state ever since the beginning of this pandemic. And especially when you take into account that there's thousands of people just struggling to find a full-time job out there. You know, this whole situation, uh, you know, this won't necessarily help matters, especially with that unemployment issue going on in the city. No, absolutely. I feel like that's one of those things where it's important to look at um, not just the immediate implications of what we're talking about, but kind of the long-reaching ones, because what's the unemployment level in this country? It's better than what it was in, like, April 2020, but I'd be very surprised if it was back to normal. Um, I think that this these mandates, you know, whether you agree with them or not, whether they're a good idea or not, are going to affect that. And I feel like that's just kind of an objective fact, because if people don't want to get the vaccine, they're going to get fired. <clears throat> um that's just one of those things that we as a country are going to have to deal with going forward in one way or another. And I feel like going back to the very beginning of our conversation, wrapping this up in a cute, neat little bow, that um, we don't think that they can. We don't think that we have the faith in the government officials and we don't have the faith in um, city officials to be like, hey, you know, we, we, gotta, we got this. We got a handle on this. It's pretty evident that they don't got this or that they didn't get this, at least towards the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know about this particular issue. The unfortunate thing, I feel like, is people just aren't talking about the shortages or people are talking about the shortages in a more theoretical sense than they should be. I think people are kind of just saying, like, oh, you know, doomsday scenario, this is going to happen. It's like it's not doomsday scenario. You know, it's 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 Wednesday. It's it's Friday. You know, it's it's coming up. And, you know, I really hope one way or another it doesn't come to that, because if it does, that's a big um, that's a big mess for everybody involved. But we've seen in the past even how just the failure of one Um, portion of the city or one portion of the state could kind of lead to a domino effect i mean i don't know if you remember this ryan i uh nathan you might even remember this because it was really big news but um if the liwr went on strike do you remember that when they were like planning to go on strike in like 2013 2014 or so i heard i heard news of that yeah so they were planning to go on strike and you know i was too young to really know what was going on i mean i knew what was going on but i was too young to be really affected by it But I remember even looking at the news, and thank God neither of my parents were commuters to the city, but a lot of kids that I knew were commuting to the city or their parents were commuting to the city. And the news was, like, showing all the schedules for buses from Hicksville to Manhattan. They'd have to get up at, like, 2 a.m. because I live in Suffolk County. It would have been insane. Like, can you imagine getting up at, like, 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning to drive to Hicksville to take a bus to Manhattan? 
And that was the failure of one portion of the city and one portion of the state's infrastructure being the Long Island Railroad. So thankfully, at the last minute, they averted a strike. But that begs the question, what had happened if they hadn't averted that strike? You know, the Hicksville bus schedules would have happened. So I feel like when people talk about this, they stop, need to stop talking about it as if it's like this distant possibility because stranger things have happened. I mean, we're living in a, in a pandemic. We're talking to each other in a studio with a big glass thing separating all of us, and we're all wearing masks, which, you know, is a good idea. Uh, but, <clears throat> good idea, but in 2021 would have been com- – uh, not 2021, but in like February 2020 – or January 2020, or any time earlier, would have been completely inconceivable in the United States. I'm just saying anything can happen. I feel like people need to stop treating it as if it's this big, oh, you know, what if theoretical sort of situation. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, one thing, you know, another thing that you don't really take into account as well is, uh, you know, how much this time all flies, especially when it comes Mm. to potential labor strikes and such things like that. I mean, Matt, I know you mentioned earlier about that uh, Long Island Railroad strike around, what was it, 2013, 2014? Yeah, sometime then. I mean, I'm not like particularly sure what year, but it was around, it was in the early 2010s or mid 2010s. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, I mean, personally, I think I was probably a bit too young to really recall that, but you know, I feel like it, it definitely brings up a good point though. I mean, you know, you have this strike kind of sitting in the distance for a couple months and then next thing you know it's here oh wait the strike is gonna take place tomorrow or something like that where is all the time gone with this but you know it definitely uh brings up a good point you know um and that is definitely uh you know to keep kind of keep a close eye on such things because i mean you never know uh, what exactly could change tomorrow going forward it's always good to be prepared. We know whether you sh- whether it's um for a Long Island Railroad strike that we know or don't know is going to happen, or whether it's a hurricane that we know or don't know is going to happen. It's always good to be prepared, and I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of the American public takes that preparation for granted. Um, coming up, we have a report given by Ryan Pagano about the funeral of Gabby Petito. That's going to be um, a very somber discussion, but a very um, important one to have coming up on 88.7 FM WRHU. We're back again on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. I'm Matt McDermott. I'm talking with my co-hosts, Nathan Ritchie and Ryan Pagano. Ryan, you have a report to share with us today about the funeral of Gabby Petito. Would you like to talk about that? Well, definitely, for sure. And, you know, this is definitely, uh, well, a touchy subject, no doubt. But, you know, it's definitely something that hits very close to home as well, considering that, you know, Gabby Petito was a Long Island native. So am I as well. You know, it definitely really... Uh, hits home, if you will. But anyway, with that being said, I'll get right into it here. So recently, the world was shocked and saddened by the news of Gabby Petito's disappearance and death. Uh, The 22-year-old Gabby Petito, I already mentioned she was a Long Island native. She graduated from Bayport Blue Point High School back in 2017. And this past summer, she departed with her fiance, Brian Laundrie, on a cross-country trip in his white van. And tragically, she would never return from that trip. And she was last seen on August 24th at Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Now, Laundry returned to his home in Florida on September 1st. And his return, it caught the eyes of many people because Gabby Petito did not accompany him home. Ten days later, I mean, she was reported as a missing person by her family. And then on September 19th, human remains were found within the Grand Teton National Park. And those remains turned out to be that of Petito. 
Two days later, an autopsy confirmed that the manner of death was because of a homicide. Her funer- and her funeral was held yesterday afternoon at the Maloney Funeral Home in Holbrook. The service was open to the public. It was live streamed as well. And there were many people that joined her family and friends in remembering her life. And while all this is going on here on the island, the search for her fiance, Brian Laundrie, continues. Laundrie disappeared shortly after returning to his Northport, Florida home and refused to cooperate with authorities during the search for Gabby Petito. And shortly thereafter, he was named as a person of interest in the ongoing investigation. Now, many have accused the Northport, Florida Police Department of botching the investigation from the beginning. They reportedly failed to conduct surveillance on Laundrie, despite the fact that he returned home without Petito, who was reported missing. On Thursday, the FBI announced that they issued a federal arrest warrant for Laundrie, citing alleged debit card fraud committed between August 30th and September 1st. Florida police and the FBI have been hard at work attempting to find any clues that could solve the mystery of what really happened to Gabby Petito. Last week, several eyewitnesses came forward with accounts of where they had seen Petito and Laundrie. One witness claimed that they saw Petito and Laundrie together on August 27th at a Tex-Mex restaurant in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Allegedly, Laundrie argued aggressively with a hostess, waitress, and the restaurant's manager regarding money. And this was believed to have occurred around the same time that Petito sent her final text to her mother. Two other eyewitnesses posted dashcam footage to social media from the same day, which shows a white van that was driving near Grand Teton National Park. And the van seen in the video, well, it matches the exact description of the van belonging to laundry. Another eyewitness reported to the FBI that a slow-moving white van and a man who was allegedly acting suspiciously were seen within the park on August 26th, August 27th, and possibly August 28th. And finally, two more witnesses claimed that they gave Laundrie car rides on August 29th. As new information of Laundrie's whereabouts continue to emerge, the FBI has asked for the public's help in finding Laundrie. Additionally, an underwater dive team was dispatched Wednesday at the Carlton Reserve in Venice, Florida, in an attempt to search for Laundrie. Laundrie allegedly told his parents he was heading to the Carlton Reserve last week, and no one has been able to find him since. Now, will these clues help solve the mystery of what happened to Gabby Petito? Well, that is something we will soon see for sure. And as authorities continue the search for Brian Laundrie, the world mourns the loss of Gabby Petito. May she rest in peace. Thank you, Ryan, for that report. You know, like I said, we're all from New York. This is my third time mentioning that in this broadcast. But the fact is, this does hit real close for all of us. I mean, um, Gabby Petito's hometown, Blue Point, is about 20 minutes from my hometown. And um, it's so sad and it's sobering because this really could happen to anyone. And it does happen to more people than we care to um, care to talk about. And unfortunately, not unfortunately, because this is an, histor- an important story to talk about. But this case is getting a lot of media coverage. And it is a very, very, like, unfathomably heartbreaking and sad case. But, you know, I feel like a lot of people have been asking, you know, why hasn't there been this much media coverage for different people that went missing. I mean, we've all heard the the term uh, missing white woman syndrome, and I don't like using that term necessarily because I don't want to belittle um, or, or um, demean Gabby's family for having the story talking about because this is a very important thing to talk about. But I understand the confusion behind it because how many people go missing that aren't um, that 
aren't portrayed as completely innocent or aren't, aren't portrayed as that. You know, they're portrayed as prostitutes. They're portrayed as drug addicts. Um, that's a really sad part about it. And this whole situation is just unfathomably sad. But that's the thought that came into my mind after uh, going on a month of media coverage about this case. Um, I'd be he- I'd be really curious to hear your guys' um, ponderings on this because of just how influential this has been on our daily lives. Well, definitely. And, you know, as you had met- already mentioned, Matt, I mean, this whole situation in general has just been really depressing to hear about. And, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, it's just a harsh reality that this could really happen to anybody for the most part. And, you know, I definitely feel that uh, this case uh, could definitely bring awareness uh, to similar cases where you see young adults going missing and not really being found for months at a time. I mean, recently uh, there's been a 23-year-old that hasn't been found since going missing in the Arizona desert on June 23rd. Now, his name is Daniel Robinson. Uh, His father has been in the state ever since attempting to look for him, and he has not been found as of yet. And, you know, another case that I wanted to bring up as well, 25-year-old Jelani Day, a graduate student from Illinois State University, he was reported missing on August 25th, and his body wasn't identified uh, until a month later. But, you know, the point being here that you see these case, the case with Gabby Petito uh, could potentially bring awareness to these similar cases as well that may not necessarily receive as much media attention compared to what we have seen in the Gabby Petito case. And, I mean, just seeing these situations in general, I mean, it's just been really depressing to think about, again, that this really could happen to anybody. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of you know feedback on social media with the same topic that uh one kind of wondering why certain communities or or certain people are underrepresented underreported um with these kind of situations where people go missing uh people die mysteriously and uh investigations are conducted uh and i haven't seen any of of these minority cases or, or these Cases that people have claimed to be underrepresented, I haven't seen any of them gain much national attention, obviously, let alone local attention, uh, like, you know, the Gabby Petito case started out with a lot of local attention, and then it kind of expanded into this huge story that people were fascinated with, and, I I mean, nonetheless, it's it's a horrifying story, it's sad, it's tragic that, that we're yet to find any key details and, and there have been all these steps to to take to find those key details uh, but yeah that's just my input on, on the story and, and I hope that um, the steps are taken quickly to kind of figure this out and, and deliver justice to her and her family and then absolutely Brian Laundry yeah no absolutely I think, you know, America's fascination with this case, you know, it's good. Like I said, and like I keep saying, you know, it is very good that we talk about this because this happens on a much larger scale than we like to admit as a society and as a nation. But I will say America's fascination with this particular case, with this particular human being that died so tragically is almost perverse. And I could kind of say the same for, you know, like um, in our childhoods, it was Casey Anthony. And before that, it was JonBenet Ramsey. Ramsey. But... I feel like the concept of, I mean, even you guys know all those podcasts or like BuzzFeed Unsolved things about like true crime. I really like those. I like talking about those. But then at the end of the day, we have to realize, you know, 
for all of those stories, every human being that dies like this, there's another family that's left grieving. There's another human being that died in such a horrible way. And I feel like as a society, we don't take enough time to reflect on that. We don't take enough time to talk about, you know, you know, is having reporters camp outside the funeral a really good idea? Is talking to her family at a time where they're completely bereaved and bereft beyond that, the fact that any of us can possibly imagine a good idea? And I feel like going back to your point, Ryan, <clears throat> um, this is one of those things that, and I've said this before, people don't like to talk about how much this happens. I think the, st the uh, statistic is 800,000 people go missing in the United States every year. Granted, most of them are found within 24 hours. And for that, I think it's a wonderful thing that we find them. But, you know, some of them aren't. And this is one of those cases that aren't. In the United States right now, there are 40,000 bodies that we don't know who they are. They don't know, we don't know their story. We don't know how they died. We just know we found them. And that's another tragedy. You know, people call it America's silent mass tragedy because nobody has anybody to talk for them. And nobody has anybody to talk about them and talk about their lives and talk about the way they died or to celebrate their lives if their family doesn't know they're missing. And unfortunately, anybody that dies in the manner that Gabby Petito did has the potential that could happen to him. And I feel like, you know, I don't like to use the term like if any good can come of this because no good can come of this. There's just none. And I think that people trying to make good of such a horrible situation is just, are just horrible. And I think that the concept of it is just so perverse. But I think if any, you know, good thing can be salvaged from this entire horrible tragedy... It's the fact that we're talking about this. It's the fact that we're talking about these people going missing. It's the fact that we're talking about people getting hurt by their partners or getting hurt by the people that they're intimate with. And I feel like that's another important issue to talk about in and of itself because how many women or women are put in that situation every day? Or how many, or not even just in the United States, but across the world. How many people are put in that situation? How many people go missing? How many people are threatened by their partner? And how many people feel unsafe with their partner? I feel like that's one of those things that people need to do reflection on. And I'm not talking about, well, I am talking about to an extent the people that are affected, but I also feel like it's more important for people that are in the position to stop it and don't stop it to talk about. Um, I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts on just people, the bystander effect, you know, people just kind of seeing things and not taking action to stop it. Right. And, and we talked about this with Brian Laundrie. He, he was in contact with multiple people, with Uber drivers, with... Uh, you know, people he was around when he got home and, and the fact that he did get home. And, we, and again, Ryan talked about this with uh, the uh, what Northport police kind of uh, kind of delaying the um, search or, or kind of um, botching it even. Uh, I mean, we need to, you know, we need to be more mindful of, of how uh you know how we can help uh, help i guess yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's a tough thing to talk about uh, at least for me but i mean yeah no i think Just it's definitely oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you there. yeah no you're good you're good um i think it is a very tough topic to, uh, topic to talk about but i do think it's an important one because how many of us and I, I can speak for myself and say that i've seen things that i didn't talk about that i probably should have in in retrospect because i didn't think it was enough to talk about at the time or because I didn't think, I didn't know how to talk about it. But, you know, I feel like all of us, in one way or another, have been in that kind of situation. And um, I obviously don't want to speak for any of you guys, because I don't know your stories. I don't know your, all the details of your lives. 
But I feel like that's one of those things that Americans or people in general, not even just Americans, do. And that's unfortunate because when people don't talk about things that they see, it unfortunately can lead to something like this. Ryan, you know, the I said before, the concept of women's safety is so important just across the world, and especially right now in the U.S. is at the forefront of this. But uh, actually, for both of you, a discussion question that I'm interested in hearing your topic is, um, do you think people are taking this personally when they shouldn't take it personally because of just the the media attention and because of everybody talking about it at once and because of everybody talking on social media about it? Do you think people are taking this and kind of running with it as their own tragedy when it when it arguably is or isn't? Yes, I think I, I would I would agree with with that they are kind of running with it and and using it as maybe a reason not to divert the attention but to bring more attention to to them and, and to other stories that this has kind of exacerbated and and I think social media has the power to do that at a pretty huge level and like I was talking to talking about before uh, that social media has given that platform to talk about this and, and that's a great thing that's a great thing it's given us a, a, a platform to talk about this and to reason with it but I mean obviously there's going to be those extremes on the spectrum that uh, you know are using it to completely bypass the the tragedy of the story and to talk about rather um, how certain things don't get other don't get that same attention and it and they're saying it in a way that distracts from you know the real task at hand, which is to just bring more attention to this and talk about it in a civilized way that can be productive to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I would have to definitely agree with you guys on that one for sure. I mean, one of the great things about uh, you know having social media is that you know you have the ability to really bring awareness to these cases. And I mean, I've mentioned this before. I'll definitely say this again. But, you know, the case with Gabby Petito and not just with her case, but with all these other cases as well, these young adults going missing and potentially not being found for months at a time. You know, social media has definitely helped bring awareness to these cases. And I mean, otherwise, you know, if I'm being honest, I mean, I'm not necessarily sure if I necessarily would have been aware of said cases without the effect of social media. And, you know, I feel like it's somewhat it's somewhat important to realize how important that social media really has on our lives, especially uh, when it comes to getting all the information from all these important situations. Absolutely. Ryan, you said that, um, and well, both of you guys really implied that, you know, without social media, we wouldn't be aware of how much of an issue this is. And I think that there's no shame in that because I don't think anybody would be aware of how big of an issue this is. I think anybody that would know is um, either actively working to solve it or just unfortunately can't do anything about it because of the position that they're in. And I feel like of all the things that we could say, most of them are important to talk about, but some of them are just, um, you know, we don't really mean to make a difference. Well, we do, but, you know, we're college radio hosts. (laughs) That's not really our place to do that, but I I guess the biggest thing that we could say is... um, Let's hope this never, not never, because it's going to happen again, unfortunately, just by the nature of humans. Let's hope we could um, solve this case and all the cases going like this in the future that will unfortunately happen. And I really hate to end on that very somber note, 
But it is um, getting to the time of the day, unfortunately, where we move on from our wonderful show and move on to our daily endeavors. So, Ryan, Nathan, are there anything you guys have to say just in general? Just in general. I mean, we had a great show. We talked about a lot of things. Uh, we, we had a very productive conversation on Gabby Petito and on the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and I'm, I mean, that's something to be very grateful for. Uh, no, just, absolutely. Yeah. Talking. You know, every day is a blessing, especially when you're talking about um, radio with two really wonderful guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. And I mean, it's just been a really productive morning. I would uh, be tempted to argue for um, all three of us here. I mean, getting to have the opportunity to be able to talk on all these important stories, such as Gabby Petito and not just her, but, you know, with the New York City uh, vaccine mandate in the schools, not just that, but also, you know, the U.S. Um, having enough vaccines for booster shots and also children. But, you know, you still have all these holdouts against holdouts throughout the country, I should say. But, you know, it definitely uh, was very productive, I would say, for sure, you know, being able to talk about all these important issues and then subsequently get on with our days. Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful way to wake up, and I think it's a wonderful way to start the day talking to you guys. For <laughs> sure, yeah. Absolutely. Well, hopefully next week we'll be back with our second reporter, who unfortunately we haven't gotten a chance to talk to, uh, Matthew Domenico, just because of the way our schedules have lined up and just because of the way we've been sick and just because of Labor Day and all that stuff. Fingers crossed we'll have him next week. Um... We have shows Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all the weekdays. Check out the morning show, 8 to 9 a.m. every weekday. Until then, my name is Matthew McDermott. You've been listening to Matt McDermott, Nathan Ritchie, and Ryan Pagano on 88.7 FM WRHU on Monday's edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. We'll see you next week. ...underdevelopment in our area. I would like to be a catalyst for change. There's a lot of changes that we have to do. Uh, in our country or specifically in our area. Uh, We've been uh, underdeveloped for the past several years and uh, I would like